Hello, and welcome to A Lancet Podcast. My name is Jocelyn Clark. I'm an executive editor at The Lancet, and I'm pleased to introduce to you our new series on gender equality, norms, and health. Today I'll be interviewing the lead of that series, Dr. Gary Darmstead. He's an associate dean of maternal and child health at Stanford University and the chair of The Lancet Series Steering Committee. Welcome, Gary. Thank you, Jocelyn. It's really great to be here. It's a very exciting day as we launch this series today. It is. I mean, we've put so much time and effort into this series. I know that you, along with everyone here at The Lancet, is really excited to finally publish this series. I mean, this series is such a massive effort. Five papers, five commentaries, and other related content. What gave you the idea to do a series on gender norms, equality, and health? Well, as you mentioned, I'm now at Stanford University in in the School of Medicine, but when this idea was hatched, I was still at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and I was a a director of family health, and I was spending a lot of time going out into the field visiting our our projects and and looking at how effective they are and, and trying to find ways of improving our investments. And one of the things that that kept coming to me over and over again was the the disempowerment, particularly of women, and the vertical nature of programming that often missed people right where they were at. For example, a maternal and child health program might not provide family planning. A family planning program might not be educating their children. And, And I found increasingly that people were looking for and needed holistic solutions to their health. And so that was one of the things that that began me on a journey of really thinking much more about social determinants of health and thinking about how do we dignify people, how do we empower people, how do we come through a rights-based solution at the same time that we improve their health. So that was one of the things that was going on. The other that I was noticing as I was getting more into the literature on gender is that there seemed to be a bit of a divide between people in public health health who fundamentally understood the importance of the issues, but yet sometimes felt like maybe the language was a bit inaccessible, maybe some of the concepts were not completely clear to them, but but more basically, they often didn't know exactly what they should do. And so I was trying to to bridge a gap that I perceived between people in public health who really wanted to help but didn't quite know what to do, and people in gender who were, were very steeped in the theory but but sometimes that theory didn't translate effectively into the hands of people in public health. So I set out to uh, to bridge that divide. I mean, it's a clear strength of the series that you have such a broad range of interdisciplinary experts on this author team. What was the process that you undertook to bring together this group of experts? What sort of process did you use to coordinate all the different efforts of your large team to then produce these five gender series papers? We worked very hard at that because I felt very strongly that we that we needed to bring a diversity of voices to the table. We needed to bring some uh, some people who had not really thought so much about gender, but who had skills in other areas that I thought would be important to bring in and to try to stimulate more activity around gender and health. We ended up with 114 contributors, uh, 75 co-authors from uh, 40, I think 41 different organizations. So we worked quite hard at it, and a lot of it really was 
ultimately uh, based on relationships. And so we spent a lot of time reading the literature, identifying who are the real experts, who, who are people who are forward-thinking, who have skills that, that uh, we could bring to the table to address these issues. And we reached out to them. You know, I often um, flew and visited people. I made a couple trips to London to cultivate relationships with key members who ended up on my steering committee. So it was really an enormous effort of, of cultivating those relationships, of bringing people together, of opening up discussions. And we had some instances where people said, you know, I, I've actually never sat at a table with health people and had these kinds of conversations and people on, on more on the health side saying, gee, I never understood these concepts before. Now it's clear to me. And so it was that kind of a process of, of working through and identifying what are the key issues, where are we agreeing, where are we not agreeing, how do we work through the disagreements and and just trying to cultivate an open, diverse group of people that would, would come around these concepts and think about them in, in forward-looking ways. I want to ask you specifically specifically about gender norms, because of course there's lots of different ways that we can examine the impact of gender on health, health outcomes, health systems, etc. But your series of papers is very focused on gender norms in particular. Why did you choose this focus and why are norms in particular so important to understanding and driving gender equality? Well, as, as we were looking at the field and, and understanding uh, kind of who is doing what and engaging those people, it became increasingly clear that often when people think about gender, they think about women and girls, and they, they're thinking about gender inequality. Extremely important, a long historical legacy of discrimination against women and girls that needs to be addressed, and it's a huge unfinished agenda. But as, as we were looking at you know, inequality by inequality, it became clear that, that there's an underlying set of values, set of assumptions, norms, these unspoken or spoken rules that kind of govern what's acceptable behavior, and, and power is apportioned around the, the, uh, the sanctioning of, of around those norms. They're extremely powerful. We felt that there was not enough attention, not enough scholarship in, in this area, and we really wanted to bring a strong evidence base to understand how do norms impact health. And it turns out that they do so enormously. And, and what, what emerged is that, uh, that restrictive gender norms affect all of us. You know, as I mentioned, gender inequalities are, are, are really levied primarily against women and girls. But when it comes to restrictive gender norms, these are things that all of us are navigating every day of our lives and being influenced by. And it turns out that they have massive influences on our health. This series offers a really extensive and compelling analysis using reviews of evidence, new data collection, new analysis to shed light on how gender norms do impact on health. What is your hope and expectation for how this new evidence and analysis can motivate 
both individuals and institutions to disrupt unhealthy gender norms? That's really our aim. I mean, that, that's the whole reason that we went through all this exercise was to bring people around the evidence and to spur people into action. I think it's clear that, you know, if we're to achieve the, the sustainable development goals, the fundamental tenets to me of the sustainable development goals are leave no one behind and enable everyone to live up to their full human potential. And there's absolutely no way that we're going to achieve the sustainable development goals and achieve those aspirations without addressing gender norms and health and, and also addressing gender inequalities. So our hope is that people will recognize that these are pervasive, powerful influences on all of us, that you know we have created systems that do not serve health well for any of us. The health systems that we have are gendered in their structure, in their delivery of services, and as a result, they are underperforming. And what we really want is for people to recognize this, to think specifically about how they can incorporate aspects of gender into their work. Without doing that, we face the risk of actually doing harm through our programs and not even realizing it. We, we found many instances of that. So our hope is that people will come around these issues, think about how it applies to them and push within their organizations for, for greater equality. We, we know that more diverse, more equal organizations and societies function better. Health is better. Well-being is better. Our hope is that we really stimulate a movement around these issues. Gary, what are your plans next building on this series? What do you expect and hope to do moving forward? Well, personally, I, I really want to take these principles and this evidence and work on the ground with people in countries to apply these uh, principles and to improve health. So one of the things that, that we're doing at Stanford University that I'm personally very invested in is developing expertise and collaborations in the East African region with the center in Kenya. We're looking at applying data, research to inform policy and programs that will really drive these principles to make differences in people's lives. So that, that's really what I'm most excited about is the next step. Thanks, Gary. It was great to speak with you and to hear your thoughts on why you started the series, but also the ambition around what you hope might come from the recommendations you and your colleagues make. Thank you. You can read the full series on gender equality, norms, and health now at Lancet.